Amen. Thank you, Amy. And excited about our special needs ministry. It is another great illustration of intentional innovation, doing whatever it takes uh, to reach people for Jesus. And so if you will take your Bibles today and turn with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to stand and uh, look at verses 19 through 23 in just a few moments. And so as I said earlier in the service, uh, we continue our series through our values. And so gospel first and always, that's pretty self-explanatory. And the second one, uniquely called out of Ephesians 4, that we all have a calling, a unique calling, but God weaves that together to proclaim the one gospel and to be a part of uh, the one church of Jesus Christ that is universal, that is a witnessing and vibrant church. But today we're going to lean into this idea of intentional innovation because this requires a little more unpacking, a little explanation for us. And how many of you remember history class and the names Lewis and Clark? Anybody out there? All right. Most of us. Most of us know that those are the two guys selected to explore the Louisiana Purchase. There's something about explorers that captures our imagination. And so from the time we're little in school, we learn about these guys and their exploits and their adventures. What a lot of people don't realize is is that the trip didn't go anything like they had planned. And so it was early 1800s and in 1805, uh, President Thomas Jefferson sent them out, really felt like this was key, that the natural resources and that finding a waterway from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific was going to be key uh, for our young nation, for it to be vibrant, healthy, have the resources that it needed. So there was a lot riding on this expedition. And so the mental maps that everybody had of North America looked something like this. We knew about the Missouri River find the headwater of the Missouri, right? Cross over that. And then on the other side of the continental divide, we're going to find the Columbia river, which we knew about coming from the Pacific ocean. And so we'll find this nice, easy river that will take us down, right? All the way to the Pacific ocean. And so we know it's well chronicled that Lewis kept exacting details in journals of just how difficult the first 15 months were. Uh, As they traversed hard country, they saw places no European had ever seen before. They actually lost one of their expedition. They called it Corps of Discovery. One of their teammates died along the way. And so finally, after 15 months in, Meriwether Lewis leans down. He had found the spring that was the headwater of the Missouri River, right? He takes a a deep drink from that. He's so excited to take a few steps up the trail, right? And look over the continental divide at that river that was going to go down all the way, nice and peacefully to the Pacific Ocean. And instead he saw this. The Rocky Mountains. They weren't prepared for the Rocky Mountains. Now, to be clear, the Native Americans had told them, like, you're going to encounter some mountains. Do you know what Lewis and Clark said? We're from Virginia. We know what mountains look like. (laughs) They had seen the Appalachian Mountains. No European had ever seen mountains like this before. And do you know what they had built their team around? A group of guys who were experts at, get this, canoeing. Because they thought they were going to find a river and they were going to need to make canoes out of whatever timber they had. They were going to shape those things up, jump in those canoes and float all the way down to the Pacific Ocean. Instead, they had to learn how to canoe the mountains. And that's a phrase that's been given to us by uh, Todd Bolsinger, who is a professor at Fuller Seminary, wrote an entire book for the church on this concept. The idea is this. That we tend to, as church people, look at the world behind us and pine and long for the way things, quote, used to be. The reality is the world in front of us, nobody knows what that looks like except for God. And here's one of the most remarkable things about the church, if you look back over its history. God has given the church the ability to adapt. 
Now, let me be clear. We don't change our message. We don't change our mission. But our methodology, God has given the church the ability to adapt, to be able to canoe mountains. After all, Lewis and Clark completed their expedition. As we know, their mission didn't change, but their method had to. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. I have become all things to all people. Why? In order that I may win as many as possible to Jesus. We're going to look at this passage today. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave... I have made myself a slave to win everyone, to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. I do all this because of the gospel. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, in this place, we confess that we like to hold on to methodology. Today, would you recalibrate our hearts and minds to think like the missionary that Paul was, that we are willing to get to know people, to get inside of their story, to immerse ourselves in their understanding so that we can connect the timeless message of the gospel to it. So Lord, as a church, we don't want to innovate for innovation's sake, but we want to do it because the gospel is worth it. And so, Lord, open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our lives to you in this place today. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. So as for this Sunday, we have jumped into the letter of 1 Corinthians. We need to be sure that we understand what's taking place in this letter because context is incredibly important when it comes to this verse. This is not a verse that you want to pull out of context and slap on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker somewhere. We need to understand what this means. The church at Corinth was fascinating. It was young, it was full of life, and it was full of problems. Paul had planted the church in Acts chapter 18. And so Paul was the spiritual father of this congregation. And quite honestly, at this point, some members of the church at Corinth are acting like misbehaving kids. They're acting like unruly children. So he engages in a series of correspondence back and forth with the the church there at Corinth. What's interesting is chapter 5 tells us that Paul had already sent them a letter. He sends them a letter in response. So what we know as 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And then we know there's a 2 Corinthians, so it's actually 3 Corinthians. So I hope you're all kind of confused right now. But the reality is, and the point is this, is Paul knew that what was taking place in the church needed to be confronted. And he did the hard work as a pastor that it took. We talked last week about speaking the truth in love. Well, Paul was committed to doing that with the church here at Corinth. Now, you see, Corinth was the leading commercial center in southern Greece at the time. It was infamous for its immorality. 
It was infamous for its paganism. If there was a, a marketing and tourism bureau for Corinth, they would have come up with a slogan that sounded something like this. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Because that was the lifestyle of the city. And so as the church was developing there, sadly, the church, many of its members began to try to adapt to the culture over the gospel. So they begin to more look, look more like the city, right, than impact the city. As has been often been said, right, Paul planted a church in Corinth, but he had a difficult time getting Corinth out of the church. And so in the letter to 1 Corinthians, we read about all kinds of things, issues that we still have today. Sometimes we're tempted when we read the Bible to think they, quote, had it easy in the good old days. <laughs> the letter to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is a reminder to us that the church in every era has faced challenges. So the book starts with talking about all these divisions in the church, and, and Paul shows concern for those. And the book goes on to talk about some terrible things that were happening, chapters 5 and 6 in the church and with some of the families. That's disorder, and Paul condemns that strongly. In this section of the book, there are all kinds of difficulties that the church is encountering, and Paul does what good pastors and good dads do, what good spiritual fathers do, and he gives wise counsel. And so that's the passage that we're in here. And by the time we get to chapter 9, we see Paul having to defend himself. And so what had happened in the life of the church was that Paul, right, because of his lifestyle, because he was willing to accommodate and adjust to meet the needs of people, some people saw that as he was being taken advantage of. And some of the people in the church who were against Paul saw that and said, well, then Paul, you're not really an apostle because you're not acting like one. If you're supposed to be this big dog in the church, then you need to take advantage of the rights and privileges that you have been given. Paul was being misunderstood. And what we learn from this little episode is, is that cancel culture isn't anything new. It's existed for thousands of years. Anytime there's a small group of influential people and they have an agenda and they want to silence other voices, well, then they will go to work. And so Paul was being canceled by one of the churches that he had planted. And so he's grappling with this and he's defending himself much like a, a lawyer in this passage. And he's explaining the why, because to a large part, he is being misunderstood. And as a pastor of a church, I can tell you that occasionally you're misunderstood. You know, years ago when we started the church at Station Hill and we had this charge, this mission, we loved our church up in Brentwood, but we wanted to bring that church and its ministries to our growing community, to our, our neighbors and our friends who were here. And when we invited them with us to Brentwood, right, it's too far and it's too big. And so we wanted to bring the church to this community. But as we did so, as we launched out, it was an experiment. It was intentional innovation, if you will, on the part of our Brentwood Baptist Church family, the church at Station Hill. We were the first regional campus. And so up there, we have hundreds of thousands of square feet of building to work with. We have a large staff. We have years and years, decades of history of the way that we do things. Out here, we had to start in a middle school cafeteria. It was me and a handful of part-time staff members. We had all of these challenges and more. And so sometimes we were misunderstood because we were trying to recreate ministry, build and start a whole church on a fraction of the space and resources and staff that we had been used to at the Brentwood campus. And so sometimes people would come and they would visit with us. They were excited about the mission, but they wondered about our methods. In particular, sometimes people wondered about me. And so I'll never forget, there was an older gentleman, good friend of mine, still, by the way, is a good friend of mine, who I could tell something was just a little off. He appreciated what we were trying to do. He liked it, but you can just tell. And so finally I said, hey man, do we need to talk about something? And he goes, yeah, we, we probably should. So I was like, oh boy, here it comes, right? 
So we made an appointment. We sat down in my office. We caught up for a few minutes, and I could tell he was kind of hemming and hawing and the conversation and where it was going. And so finally I just said, hey, man, we are friends. I'm a big boy. Like, tell me what's bothering you. And finally he said, Jay, I just got to admit, I have a hard time listening to a pastor who doesn't dress nicer than I do. And I was like, I guess it. I guess what, that's what's going on. That's what's been bothering you. I mean, it's been, I could see it on his face. I'd been weighing him down for weeks. I was like, well, hey, brother, let me help you out. That's an easy one. Let me explain this to you. I don't care how I dress. I try to dress middle of the road, right? Usually button downs and the khakis. Why? Because there are going to be some people who need church who, man, they just raised like you and me. I was raised in the church. I had my Sunday best. I had my play clothes, I had my school clothes, and I had that one outfit that I wore pretty much every Sunday, right? You know, that was the one I knew I wasn't supposed to get dirty as a kid. And so I get it, like wearing your Sunday best. Like I'm comfortable that way, you're comfortable that way. But I said, here's the reality. There's a whole bunch of people moving to Spring Hill from all over the country. And a lot of them have barely ever been to church. Some of them haven't been to church at all. And so if I wear like a suit and tie every Sunday, they're gonna be like, I can't relate to that guy. So I just dress middle of the road because whether it's somebody who wants to kind of throw on a jacket and feel a little more dressed up or somebody who wants to wear shorts and flip-flops, like I want them to feel like they can relate to us, like we are them. And he goes, oh, like he had thought in his mind, like here's this young punk pastor and he's trying to dress all, you know, whatever, casual and cool and like trying to accommodate to the culture. Here's the reality. It's a method. And so what I want to be about is the mission. And when he got that, like I said, we're still friends today. It's all cool. But it's one of the things that happens consistently in the life of the church is we misunderstand each other. And here is our first point this morning about intentional innovation. We have to love our mission, but only like our methods. What is essential is the gospel, as we talked about two weeks ago. What is vitally important is our mission. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gave us the great commission. And our mission has not changed for 2,000 years, nor should it. The imperative there, go and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. So we get a couple of participles. We should be baptizing. We should be teaching. But other than that, Jesus didn't give us a whole manual about how to make disciples. He knew and understood that his example, which we have captured in the Gospels, and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the church would teach us how to make disciples as we stayed in line with him, but as we saw our methods adapt as the Gospel moved forward. We'll talk about this some more next week as well. But one of the things that we have to remember is the distinction between loving our mission but liking our methods. And you get that distinction. We should like the way that we do things. We put intentionality and thought and effort and resources and time into those things. But we have to hold them loosely because over time, they are going to change. As a matter of fact, they have to change because they have to connect with the people that we are trying to reach. And so Paul makes it clear. If you could just go one verse above it, right? He says, verse 18 of chapter 9, Then what then is my reward to preach the gospel? 
and to offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul is saying what I'm about is the mission of declaring the gospel. And what I do or what I don't do, right, I push all through the lens of will this help the gospel advance or will it not? Then Paul says something pretty radical. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave. Now you need to realize that whereas slavery looks different in our world today than it did then, that during the time that Paul wrote this, about a third of the Roman Empire, it's estimated, were indentured servants of some kind. You owed something to somebody. So a huge percentage of the population, in particular in Rome, when Paul writes that book, was slaves. And so what Paul's saying is, listen, like I, I am not indebted, I'm not indentured to anybody, but he says this, I have made myself a slave to everyone. That's a radical statement for a person who's free. To say, I don't have to, but I want to. I want to serve people. In other words, I want to put myself beneath them, not over them. The church at Corinth was criticizing Paul because he wasn't lording it over them. He wasn't acting like a big dog. But he's saying, that's not the point. Jesus gave us an example, didn't he? Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul got this and he says, listen, I'm willing to be a slave if that's what it takes. And it's fascinating to me that, that throughout history, again, we've gotten these things confused sometimes. The mission over the method. And we become beholden to methods and trappings and, and certain cultural artifacts as if they are gospel themselves. I mean, I've heard people say things like, I can't worship in a church that doesn't have stained glass. Right? Now, I think stained glass is beautiful. How many of you love a good piece of stained glass, right? Yeah, okay, my home church had it. Right? Remember the, the sunlight filtering in right through that stained glass. It was beautiful, the shapes and colors and all of those kind of things. But I hope that you understand that stained glass is not essential to the mission of the church. So where did stained glass come from? How did it originate? Well, during the Middle Ages, most people could not read Certainly a very small percentage of people could even read the Bible. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that certain people stayed in power was they would not allow the Bible to be translated into the language of the common person. So some people being intentional with their innovation said, how are we going to teach people the Bible, right? The good ones, the one who really wanted to teach God's word. And so they said, I know pictures, how many of you love pictures over words? Let's just be honest, right? You love a good illustration, right? You love a good movie because you can see it on display. Yeah, a lot of us are that way. And so what did they do? If you zoom in on these stained glass windows, they are scenes and stories from the Bible. You see stained glass, that was our first projector screens. You get it? It's really nothing new. But the methodology changes, it adapts over time. What was the intent and purpose, right? Teach people the stories of the Bible. Allow them to sit there in church and as they look, they're reminded, oh yeah, this is the story that God has written throughout the Bible as they're singing in worship, as they are praying, as they're listening to the pastor or the one delivering the message. On and on we could go, right, with all of these traditions. Choir robes, where do you think those came from? Well, you had people in the church from all different backgrounds and walks of life. But some people had more money, some people had less. And it's not very unifying to look up on the platform and begin to judge people for what they're wearing, whether they're wearing nice clothes or whether they have more poor clothes to wear. And so choir robes were the solution. 
That way everybody looks uniform. Everybody looks the same. Nobody's distracted by looking at what they wear. Instead, they're listening to the words that they sing. Do you get it? Like on and on we could go, right? A lot of the hymns that we have today, a lot of the hymns that we call traditional, well, they were written, right, using contemporary patterns of song because once upon a time, people thought you should just sit and listen. You shouldn't participate in worship. But some innovators, particular after Martin Luther and the Reformation said, you know what? One of the ways that we can rehearse the gospel is by getting people to sing. So let's take music and let's put it in the language of the common people. Let's use, right, popular tunes and hymns. Let's use those things and let's set the gospel to that kind of music so that people can sing. Did you realize that even hymns were an innovation at one point on and on we could go throughout the list, but what is the point? It's the mission. It's the mission that matters. And that's what Paul was pointing us to. And that leads us to point two this morning, which is this, it's how Paul did it. Intentional innovation means that we value people over our programs and being present over just accomplishing projects. Now, every program and every project that was ever started in a church was started with a good intention. It was to reach people. It was to disciple people. It was to do something that wasn't being done. But over time, what begins to happen in our churches? We begin to value the program or the project over the people. And so at some point, often, the the program isn't effective at reaching people with the gospel anymore or discipling people or equipping them or empowering them. And it said, but we keep it going and it does what? It hurts people. It actually burns out people. It distracts them from becoming disciples of Jesus and, and deeper disciples of Jesus because we're spending all of our time on projects and programs that aren't serving people. Instead, we have to think like a missionary. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself, right? And see those two come together. Stephen Oom writing in the Preaching the Word commentary says, the missionary encounter is precisely what is needed today. We live in a post-Christian culture where the ground has shifted dramatically and where we can no longer assume a Christian public. The church needs to have a healthy contextual approach that neither assimilates us to the host culture nor under-adapts from its home culture. Business, as usual, won't cut it anymore. And Paul knew, having been transformed by the gospel, that he needed to connect with people, some who were like him and some who were not. So Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. What's ironic about that statement? Paul was a Jew, (laughs) the way he was raised, he studied under one of the leading rabbis in Israel. But Paul, as he became a follower of Jesus Christ, had so decoupled himself, right, from that identity. At one point he said, listen, I was a Jew among a Jew, but I consider all that rubbish for the sake of the gospel. That Paul said, but listen, I still want to identify with my Jewish brethren. Why? Because I recognize that they are under the grips of the law. What does he mean by that? They're under the grips of legalism. They need saved from their good works. They need saved from trying to earn their way into right standing with God. They need the gospel presented to them in a unique way. And then he goes on to talk about those who are not under the law. I become like them. What does he mean? Well, that's the Gentiles. That's the Greeks. Those are on the outside. We like to say it this way in the contemporary church. We can't expect people outside the church to behave like their church people. And yet so many of our churches do when people come in the doors. Why don't you act like us? Why don't you talk like us? Why don't you think like us? Well, they need the gospel first. That's why. 
And that's what Paul's saying. Whereas the Jewish people needed to be saved from themselves and their attempt to save themselves by good works, Gentiles needed to be saved by the gospel. They needed to be saved from their sin. And what Paul is saying is incredibly important. Because what he's saying is, is I'm not going to them to act like them or to try to look like them. I'm going to them to get to know them. I have become one of them. I'm not just going to ask some questions. I'm going to immerse myself in their culture so that I can understand the gaps in their worldview, so that I can understand their hardest questions, so that I can feel what they feel. What Paul is saying here is he is identifying with people because people are the focus of our mission so that we can connect them to Christ. Paul also mentions the weak here because that was part of what was happening in the Corinthians church. The powerful, strong church members were pushing out the weak. They weren't considerate for the weak and their spiritual needs. And Paul says, listen, if that's what it means, I want to think like a person who's weaker in the faith so that that I don't cause them to stumble. And what Paul is saying in all of this is that he is willing to lay aside his preferences. He is willing to lay aside what he would do if it was just left up to him for the sake of others knowing Christ. And we have churches in North America filled today with people who take the minors and make them majors because they don't want to let go of their preferences for the sake of Jesus. And so when we follow the example that Paul set for us, we begin to realize Paul loved people. Jesus loved people. This phrase, all things to all people, talks about the gospel's value of agility. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It's a great, quick, just snapshot of his mentality. He said, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. And what a great mission. As we share lives authentically, we share the gospel. We share the gospel, connecting it to people's everyday lives. That's why I love some of these ministries that you all have developed as a church because you are looking at how we connect with people because it's about the people. And number three, and this needs to be said because we need to be clear on what all things to all people is not, is this. Intentional innovation means we never compromise our message, but we find bold new ways to share it. We don't ever compromise our message. Paul is clear about that in verse 23. Now I do all this because of what? Because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Really, the better translation is so that I may share in it, so that we right, may share in what God is doing through the gospel. So that is his focus. Unfortunately, this phrase, all things to all people, has been horribly taken out of context in a lot of situations. I want to give you an extreme one. When I was a youth minister in Alabama, heard a story of the town over where there was a youth pastor, and this was from a reliable source, so I'm pretty sure it's true. But this youth minister had been caught smoking marijuana. And he was brought in before the church, the pastor and the church board, and they had a hard conversation about it. And so his excuse Paul says, I have to be all things to all people. And how am I going to minister to teenagers if I don't know what it means to get high? I'm not even joking. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) How well do you think that argument went across with the pastor and the church board? Let's just say it went up in smoke. (laughs) Why? Because it's horrible hermeneutics. Because you can't pluck a verse out of context. You don't win sinners by sinning. 
That's not the way to the gospel. It's immature. And so what Paul is giving here is not a license for us to just do anything. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Paul's saying, listen, there are a lot of things that I can do. As a matter of fact, the whole argument in this section of the letter to the Corinthians, there's a ton of things that I'm free to do. But do you know what? Because of Jesus, it's not about my freedom. It's about the gospel. It's not about what I want to do. It's about what will reach you. It's not about my preference. It's about the passion of Christ, that he came to die for undeserving sinners. That's what Paul was all about. And so we have to find creative ways to share it. That message demands our creativity. That message demands the best of our energy. That message demands the best of our efforts. And one of my favorite stories that illustrates this, because I think Paul had this like whatever it takes mentality about the gospel comes from very early in the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter two. A lot of you are familiar with the story. You remember it from Sunday school. There was a man who was paralyzed. And in the first century, if you were paralyzed, there was no, you know, Israelis with disabilities acts. Like there was no way for you to be able to support yourself or be able to care for yourself. He was literally at the whim of the culture. And he had four friends. And these four friends heard that Jesus was in town. He was teaching, he was healing, and they were gonna do anything they could to get their friend to Jesus. And so they get there. And of course, all the quote, important people are packed in around Jesus in this house and they can't get in to see him. So they do what? They intentionally innovate. They get creative. We're going to find a way. They go up on that flat roof. They start digging through it. They lower their friend to Jesus. I just would have liked to have seen that guy's homeowner's insurance claim. Why is there a hole in roof? Act of God. (laughs) But do you see it? What's the mission? Get people to Jesus. What's the method? Any way that we can. That's biblical. It's ethical. What is the message? Jesus looks at that man on the mat and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now take up your mat and walk. You see how it all begins to work together. And it's why today we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because at this table, we remember that the message came to us. Just like Paul identified with people. The God of the universe came to identify with you and me. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. Jesus felt what we feel. Jesus immersed himself in our world. Why? In order to save us. So we intentionally innovate for the sake of the gospel, not for merely innovation's sake alone. Let's be clear about that. It's a little satirical website called the Babylon Bee. Some of you have seen it before. Headline cracked me up a couple years ago. said this, fog machine broken at church, Holy Spirit unable to move. (laughs) We laugh. Why? Because it's a sign that as the church, sometimes we get the method ahead of the mission. We forget it's not about our lights. (laughs) It's not about all of the details and the fog machines and the things that we would wrap around it. It's about the message. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And this moment reminds us that the gospel is about the reality that Christ came to us, that he came, as I said earlier, not to be served, but to serve. And when he laid down his life for us, it saved us. And so instead of clinging to every right that we might have, we lay aside our preferences so that we can connect others to the life-changing gospel of Jesus. 
As our deacons come forward this morning, I want you to prepare your hearts in a couple of ways. One, I want you to spend this moment in prayer and reflection. Do you know the gospel? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about gospel first and always. And so if you don't know the life-changing power of Jesus, we want to remind you that that's what this moment is all about. Because the bread and the cup, they are pictures, symbols that Jesus himself gave us of what he did on the cross. He said to do this, and in doing so, remember him. So we remember the power of this moment. Also today, you may need to confess that you have majored in the minors, that you have put your agendas and plans, your preferences and your wants ahead of the mission. And so today, some of us may need to repent and come back. There are those of you out there today who you're longing for something to give your life to. Would you commit to using the best of your resources, the best of your creativity, the best of your intentionality in order to get the word out so that people may know this truth that we're about to celebrate. Whatever it is, as the deacons distribute the elements after I pray, hold on to those and we'll take them together in just a moment as a church. But reflect on these things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the Apostle Paul was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we see at the table one of the most incredible innovations, so to speak, of all time. That Jesus took something very ancient, the Passover meal, and that he fulfilled its meaning and its purpose in his very own life, with his body and with his blood. So may we never get over the gospel May we never compromise our mission, but may we always desire to be like Jesus, to be like Paul, to do whatever it takes to be obedient to you. Be with us now as we reflect in this moment, and it's in your name we pray.
Speaking of intentional innovation, we didn't realize how noisy this little innovation would be. But we needed to be good steward and use these left over from the pandemic. If you will, take that bread. Peel back that cellophane if you haven't already. And as you hold this bread, be reminded. Bread is one of the themes that runs throughout the pages of Scripture. A daily item that we need sustenance, foundational. Jesus Himself said, I am the bread of life. He is what we need. This bread represents the body of Jesus given for you. Take now and eat. as we take the cup, peel back that foil lid. We are reminded of the gospel that Paul wanted to declare so passionately. The gospel that whether you are Jew or Gentile, under the law or outside of the law, slave or free, male or female, boy or girl, young or old, It's the same gospel that we all need. It's that we have been separated from God by our sin. And in order for sin to be covered, blood had to be shed. There had to be a price that was paid. That price was paid by Jesus on the cross. Paul says this, this message is of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. So don't forget it. Every time we handle the bread, every time we take of the cup, we remember that this represents the blood of Jesus shed for you. Take now and drink. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the message that we get to give our lives to, that we get to participate in. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 9, we don't have to. Instead, we choose to. We get to. And so Lord, may that be the desire of our hearts that we would do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing this hymn in response this morning.